entitled my thoughts this morning, Dealing with False Teaching, and we hope to continue our study of Paul's epistle to Titus with a consideration of Paul's instruction for Titus to teach and to preach in such a way that error is corrected, but also, as we'll see today in a perhaps a colorful way, to outright silence teachers who are adamant in teaching destructive ideas, what we would refer to as things that are heretical or heresy. Now, as we introduce that to you today, we, we always come to the Lord in His house with joy and with singing. Introducing that message to you today probably isn't as joyful on your ears as the sweet message of salvation by grace, but it is as needful for those who have been saved by God's sovereign grace to hear is any other topic, particularly at this junction in human history. If you were to take a survey of American Christendom and you were to ask them, can you define for me the Trinity? Can you define for me, what do you believe about Jesus' identity? Do you believe in the virgin birth? Do you believe that salvation is by grace, or do you think that God tallies it up on a scale and whichever direction the scale leans at the end of your life is whatever direction you'll go? I have a feeling that we would not only be shocked, but we would probably be alarmed to know what many who name the name of Christ believe. Now, so many times we blame that on American Christendom, but do you know whose fault that is? It is the fault of the teacher. And so we do all that we can here to teach you the full counsel of God, to share with you, to keep back nothing that's profitable, but teach every portion of God's Word, everything that God's Word teaches. And that's why we go through books of the Bible like this, because we are forced to teach every fundamental concept that there is in the Word of God to teach. We began this series looking at the glorious promise of salvation that began before the world was created in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. That's a subject that we rejoice in and we need to hear. We considered over the past two weeks the need of ministry in our lives, and I use a plural term there that I included myself in. We need preachers. We need preaching, which brought us to the qualifications of the men who are to preach. And then Paul, from that point, a very needful point, goes into warning against false teaching and how to exhort those who would teach things that are not true. Simply put, if the sword of the Spirit in the armor of God is the Word of God, then it stands to reason that we are engaged in a war of words. You've heard that expression many times in your life. It's a war of words. Now, there have been times in human history, many times, in fact, more times than not, that somewhere in the world there has been war in a physical sense. But as the kingdom of God, we are a nation, if you think about it that way, a kingdom with a king and citizens, subjects, peoples. We engage in warfare like ancient Israel did, but our warfare is not a physical one. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but we engage in a war of information. A war of information, a war of words, as it were. The true gospel, that is, versus all of its rivals, 
every false way and every false gospel. And so there is warfare between the true gospel and, you might say, other religions in the world, antichrist religions, religions that deny Christ, and also against secular thought and atheism and evolution. But there is also warfare between the true gospel and every false gospel. The things that other religions might teach and the false things that we may hear as people who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read through the New Testament, nearly every single book of the New Testament contains some warning against false teachers. When God says the same thing twice, we ought to perk up. When God says the same thing over and over again, we ought to pay attention. Because whatever he's saying to us that many times is crucial and important to us. Scripture warns over and over against false teaching and false teachers. And so we ought to be concerned, awake, alarmed, equipped, and ready. This information warfare, if you want to refer to it as such, though it is waged by the tongues of men, has a much more nefarious source from the enemy side. We're not just dealing with the opinions of people. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul exhorts the church at Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God that they may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wile there has reference to trickery. You might remember, and this is an example my, one of my mentors always used when I was younger. He would invoke into his discussion, being a father of many young children, the character in Looney Tunes, Wiley Coyote. Now, the great philosopher that he was. He would always try to trick the roadrunner, and he was named as a character Wiley Coyote because he was the trickster. He's always trying to trick him, you know, painting a, <laughs> painting a tunnel on the side of a rock or trying to get him to eat something that would explode. He's tricking, and his name was the character Wiley. That's also my grandfather's first name. And so we had lots of jokes from that as a kid. Wiley Winslet. What are you thinking? Parents that name your kids Wiley. Anyway, it's like, hey, meet my sons, Judas, Cain, and Esau. What can go wrong? What can go wrong? The wiles of the devil, the trickery of the devil, the deceit of the devil, ultimately, the warfare that we have is with Satan and his minions. But notice how Paul expands from that point. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There were times that Paul got beat by men. There were times that Paul was brought before Herod and magistrates and the Sanhedrin and eventually Caesar. Twice he appeared before Nero, Caesar, referred to in Scripture as Caesar Augustus, but the term Augustus was one that continued from Octavian on and they passed it to subsequent Caesars. He appeared before Caesar. You'd think his battle was with Rome. But his battle was not ultimately with Rome. His battle was with whom? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, 
against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so Paul tells the church at Ephesus that they needed to arm themselves, to prepare themselves, to take upon them the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, gird their loins with truth, have their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, and take the shield of faith that they may may be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. But the only offensive weapon in that armor is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And so we use the Word of God to correct error. It applies to every part of our lives. It is relevant today. It is not old-fashioned. It is full of eternal wisdom Understand, God's wisdom, according to Proverbs 8, was possessed by Him before the foundation of the world. Nothing that we share in the Word of God is new. It might be new to you, and it might be new to me when I learn it, but it isn't new. It's eternal because it belongs to God. It is the Word of God. And so it stands true for eternity. And we take that as a weapon, and we do battle in this world. The agents of this force of darkness so many times are the false teachers. Christianity has false teachers. We ought to be aware of that. But there are many gurus and many spiritual teachers and many proclaimers of wisdom in the world today, and they're all vying for your mind and your heart. You see them so many times in viral videos shared online, and depending on your perspective of life, there'll be a different guru depending on the perspective of that guru, depending on what we want to hear. The battlefield is the world. The weapons that they have are ignorance and outright lies. Ignorance is a very important tool that the enemy has. If you read the parable of the sower, you know that because of misunderstanding, Satan, like a bird, sees the word as it's sown in your heart from a great distance away. He swoops in, he takes the word as it was sown in your heart because of misunderstanding, and he pulls it away. What is another Synonym for misunderstanding. If you don't understand, in another way of saying that, you're ignorant of something. Satan capitalizes on the ignorance of God's people. And according to Hosea, God's people perish for a lack of knowledge. They perish for a lack of knowledge. But not only do we have to battle against our own ignorance and the ignorance of others, even sometimes well-meaning people who don't know better, We have to do battle against outright lies. There are people who, in the history of Christianity and all through the history of the world, who've taught things that are just absolutely false. Some of them know that it's false. Some of them are deceived. But we do battle against things that are outright lies. And to be very clear up front, there are passages that we all disagree on. If you take... Ten preachers, and you place ten good, God-called, sincere men who are doing the best that they can do in a room, and you begin to ask them to expand on the nuances of passages of Scripture, contested passages or even ones that we agree on, parables, unfulfilled prophecy, or eschatology, which is the study of end times, you'd probably get ten opinions. In fact, you may get fifteen opinions out of the ten men. If you read writings like John Gill, you'll see that he lists four or five opinions sometimes before he gives you his own, and many of those were accepted by his contemporary peers. None of us have this all figured out, myself included. 
In fact, so many times I walk into the pulpit saying, Dear God, help me today. Help me to say what is right and true and purge out of me things that are wrong. A prayer that I have prayed my entire ministry is, Lord, if we are wrong, and I mean we as in the primitive Baptist, about a subject, then lead us to what is true and do it in one swift motion where we all walk lockstep towards the truth because we want to believe the truth. We want to believe and embrace that which is true. We don't want to believe things that are errors. As uncomfortable as repentance might be, we want to proclaim and believe and embrace the truth. Jesus, after all, is the way, the truth, and the life. If he's truth personified, I ought to be concerned with what is true, especially in light of the fact that Satan is the father of lies. And so juxtaposing truth and error, you have on one side our Lord Jesus Christ, and on the other side you have the father of lies, that wicked one, Satan. We're going to have differences in opinions, and that's okay, but what we're talking about today are things that contradict a fundamental tenet of Christianity. If someone says, you know, I don't think that Jesus is really the eternal Son of God, let's stop right there, because we cannot proceed further. If they say, I don't know about this Trinity concept, that there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, stop right there. I don't know that salvation is by grace, stop right there. There are things we cannot disagree on and we must be united on as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing that we want to emphasize about this type of error that Paul is confronting here, we all have differences in opinions. But these are the types of ideas that divide and destroy the Lord's churches. And so... You often think about, from a, I guess, a military perspective, divide and conquer. Where do we get that phrase, divide and conquer? A house divided against itself cannot what? Stand. Who said those words? The Lord Jesus Christ said those words. Divide and conquer. These ideas divide and destroy churches. That's why it must be dealt with. A few years ago... In fact, now, just about two decades ago, there was a church going through some trouble. And for decades, they had a pastor who denied several fundamental tenets of the faith, but everyone loved him. And he was a good man, but he was a good man in error. When confronted with dealing with that from other local elders and even other local churches, it was often retorted back, well, the pulpit should just be an open forum. In other words, whatever a man thinks and believes, he should just be free to share and let the chips fall where they may. You will not find that concept in Scripture. It is not an open forum. We were referred to as ministers in the previous verses in this chapter as the what's of God. The blank, fill in the blank. The stewards of God. What was a steward? Do you remember the definition? One who has been placed in charge of a household by the head of the house to deal with his estate in his absence. As a steward of God, we ought to take this very seriously so that what we say is true and right. There are very few things in this world that I tremble at. I'm not afraid of a whole lot. Heights, that's one. Saying something that is wrong 
to you, his people, and then standing before him and answering for that terrifies me. And it ought to terrify you. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Lastly, before going into the text, this is all the preface. Paul has two types of people in mind who are in error. And we've alluded to this already. You have misguided sheep. They don't know any better. Whose job is it to fix that? The gospel ministry. But you also have a far more dangerous character, the unregenerate, who creeps in unaware to make merchandise of God's people and damage the flock. People who come in to heap unto themselves disciples. They want to be in charge of people. They want power. They want money. And so they come in. Religion, by the way, is an excellent way for a charlatan to make lots of money. And we warn against that. All right, let's look at the passage. Titus chapter 1, verses 9 through 16. You've already read Paul introduce himself. You know to whom he's writing. You know that he begins to talk about why he left Titus in Crete to set in order things that are wanting, take care of things that needed to be taken care of, and ordain elders in every city. He tells them what type of men need to be ordained, and he talks about the importance of the work of the ministry. And then we come to verse 9. The minister is to be one who is holding fast, beginning to read, the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Continuing, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and their conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate." Backing up to verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, the gospel minister, that he may be able by sound doctrine, sound teaching, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Now, I would probably be willing to wager that none of you this past week in your life used the word gainsayer unless you read a portion of Scripture and the word gainsayer occurred. How many of you used that word? I had to deal today with a few gainsayers. It's not a part of our daily vocabulary in 2021. In fact, many of these larger words in Scripture are not a part of our daily vocabulary. Many of the larger words in English are not a part of our daily vocabulary because we live in an L-O-L-S-M-H society. In other words, we've dumbed down the language. If you read the 
and I mean the handwriting of people who lived 200 years ago. You pull back up the church minutes from 200 years ago or 100 years ago. Read your grandmother's cursive writing when she was 30 and compare it to my writing today. It's unquestionable that we have less of a grasp on language today than we had then. It's amazing that we have more words and less understanding, more words and less knowledge of vocabulary as far as words at our disposal. Think about it. I used to have to write a letter and send it to someone in the mail. Now I can just text them. And it seems like the more convenient language gets for us, the less precise that the language gets. And so you text, and there might not even be punctuation. It's just one long run-on sentence, voice to text, hit send. We don't say gainsayers a lot. What is a gainsayer? A gainsayer is simply one who speaks against something or something. A synonym to this might be a scoffer or a mocker, one who disagrees, an opponent, an adversary, a gainsayer. What specifically are they gainsaying against? They might accuse you of being the gainsayer if they disagree with Christianity. They are speaking against the doctrine of Scripture. They're speaking against the gospel. They're speaking against perhaps the divinity, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're speaking against the core tenets of Christianity. And so Paul says that we hold fast the faithful word. If you want to know something in the world that is faithful, something you can depend on, something you can trust, it's the word of God. We hold fast the faithful word of God as we have been taught. That implies perpetuity from one generation to the next. And it also, it also implies, as we've referenced the last two Sundays, the method with which ministers are to be trained, other ministers not universities or colleges. We don't outsource that in the church, but we train men in the church. Where is it that they function? In the church. They learn in the capacity in which they are taught. They have been taught the faithful word, and they are to use the faithful word to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Now, this tells us that some gainsayers can be convinced. I think we've all known people who argued fervently with what you've presented to them as gospel truth, who have, after arguing with you for a period of time, had their eyes open to a truth of Scripture and then began believing and proclaiming the truth that they once disagreed with. I have a dear friend, and we used to argue about dispensationalism. That's a modern end times view of, or a modern view of end times. And we would argue, we would argue, we would argue, it would get heated. I was a young preacher then, and so I was still very much cage stage. You know, you have to be in the cage, and then they put, then you you become sage. They put you in a cage, then you become sage. That's what people say, I don't know. They put you in a cage because you're like a snarling dog that growls and barks at people and tries to bite them when they walk by When you're first convinced and you're first let loose on the world, you're cage stage. And so I was cage stage, and I was arguing and arguing and arguing. And finally, he got to investigating the origins of dispensationalism that I had shared with him adamantly in my cage stage. And he came back and he said, you know what? I watched some videos on this, and you're right. And from that point on, he hasn't held to that view. And yet there was a time that we disagreed very fervently on that. And it's funny to us now. We laugh about it. We laugh about it. But it wasn't funny then. It was heated. We disagreed. 
very severely. Sometimes someone will disagree with what you were teaching, and that's what a gainsayer is, someone who speaks against, and you can, through holding fast the word, use sound doctrine from the word of God to exhort and then convince them. Some gainsayers can be convinced. Now, that's an encouragement to all of us. Sometimes we feel like I'm never going to make any inroads, any grounds on convincing anyone of any doctrine. But friends, that's not the case. God blesses us to convince people of the truth. This entire book is an example of that. There's no way to read the book of Acts and not think that God will open doors to proclaim the truth of God's word and it be received. It's difficult in our day because it's like Baskin-Robbins where you have so many flavors of Christianity, every one of them disagreeing with every other one of them. But it is possible and God blesses us to convince, convince them. We convince them as we exhort them. So I don't know if you should ever say anything that disagrees with someone. They might get mad at you. Well, they do get mad at you. But that's how you convince people. You know, when my brother was in high school, he would sit at the lunchroom table and he would argue with the kid that went to a different type of church in his community. And they got more and more <laughs> elaborate, the debates. And they would go back and talk to their pastors each week and come back to the lunchroom table and argue some more. That young man that he argued with came to church with us, but he never became one who walked with us. But would you believe that there were three or four guys that sat at the lunch table with him who listened to every one of those debates, who came to church with Josh and joined and believed the same thing that we believe today? There was some convincing that took place. God blessed for people to be convinced by sound teaching, sound doctrine. We can, by sound doctrine, both to exhort... You know what exhort means. It means to admonish, to instruct. Interestingly enough, the word exhort in the Greek language can also mean to call one to your side. To call one to your side. When you're exhorting someone, think about that. Let that frame your perspective. I'm not exhorting them to say, you're wrong, I'm right. You should be like me so you wouldn't be so wrong. That's about me, isn't it? This isn't about me. We exhort... And we call people to our side. Come walk with me. Come walk with me. I found a better way. Come walk with me. Paul continues, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. Now we're going to go through this verse by verse and consider what Paul says. There are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. The word unruly means simply unable to be governed. You might put another word on this, a synonym, rebels. There are many rebels. Now, who are they rebelling against? They're rebelling against God, and they're rebelling against His Word, and there are many of them. There are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. Now, you notice that there's a comma in this sentence, and then following that comma, you have the word specially, and then he says, they of the circumcision. Gives, this gives us a literary structure that Paul would use from time to time where he talks about a large group and then he draws a more specific focus to a smaller subgroup within the overall large group. Where's another example of this in Pauline writings? 
In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4, we read that God is the Savior of all men. The word all there means all types of men. There are people that Christ has not saved or there would be no one in hell. Understand, Christ is not the Savior of people in hell because to be the Savior of them, He had to save them. And so all here, as it so commonly does, the Greek word here means all of a certain type or some of all types. God is the Savior of all types of men, especially of those that believe. Of all the people in the world, out of every nation, kindred, and tongue that He has saved, He saved a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. There's one group of people that we know that He has saved, and that is the believer. A small group within a larger group. Why? Because with belief comes assurance of salvation. All of the whosoever believeth passages in the Word of God, particularly in John's Gospel, emphasize this point that the believer will be with Christ in glory. And then the theology that we read in John's first epistle explains this to us because no man can believe unless he is born of God. And if he's born of God, he was redeemed. If he was redeemed, he was elected. And because he was elected and redeemed and regenerated, he will be what? He will be glorified. And so we find all these great and glorious promises in Scripture given to the believer as a form of declarative assurance to them. And when you read that, let it assure your hearts, Lord, what's going to happen to me when I leave this world? You're going to be with Him. You just prayed to Him, Lord, what's going to happen to me when I leave this world? It testifies that you belong to Him. Because if you, if you didn't belong to Him, if you weren't quickened of Him. You'd be like those of Romans 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't seek Him. They don't understand Him. The gospel is foolishness unto them, as 1 Corinthians 1 says. But this is a device that Paul uses to emphasize a smaller group, a more specific group, within an overall large group. And this has reference to the culture at the time in which Paul writes. More on that in a moment. There are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers in Paul's day, especially they of the circumcision. In Paul's day, in the first century, one of the greatest opponents to the gospel came from Judaism. One of the greatest forms of production of detractors, you might say, was Judaism. The early persecutions in the book of Acts were found from the chief priests and the Sanhedrin. The mobs that dragged Paul out of the temple and beat him, the people that laid wait at the gate of the city waiting for him to come out to kill him, and he is let in a basket by a rope down the side of the wall of the city instead, those were all people of his own nation. In his day... Though there were many vain talkers and deceivers, there were especially vain talkers and deceivers among the circumcision. In fact, in the book of Philippians, he would call them the concision instead of the circumcision, and the word concision means mutilators. And he would say that we're the circumcision of the heart. We're the true circumcision, the Israel of God, the spiritual Jew contrasted with the concision, the mutilators. That's biblical language. It's biblical language. 
There are many unruly and vain talkers. Vain there means pointless. And this simply means that there's no point in anything that they say. Vain means pointless. They just offer pointless, useless speech. Especially among the circumcision of that day. Now, why that particular group? Well, first of all, they were persecutors. They argued with, very violently, the gospel. But from legalism, justification by the works of the law, to Christ's denial, denying that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, to outright fables, they opposed the church. At every turn, they were inundated with false belief. And again, the minister of the gospel is to challenge that and use sound teaching from the Word of God to confront it and correct it. And if he can't correct it, what is the next thing that he must do? And that brings us to verse 11. Paul writes in verse 11, "...whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake." This word, this phrase rather, mouths must be stopped, comes from a single Greek word that means to muzzle. Now, I laughed when I read that. Why did I laugh when I read that? Because this entire silly mask time that we've lived through in the United States of America, I've made dad joke after dad joke about how we needed to get muzzles for the kids instead of masks. What does a muzzle do? Well, it stops a dog from biting for one. But it also, if you can't open the mouth of the dog because the muzzle is on the mouth of the dog, the dog can't bark. And so this term, mouths must be stopped, literally means that they must be muzzled. They must be muzzled. Their mouths must be stopped. They must be silenced. Sometimes you hear someone, if they are confronted and they teach something that's not true from a biblical perspective, you will hear them complain that they are being silenced by their objectors. This passage literally calls for false teachers to be silenced. Say, I went to Brother Ben's church and, he, and I taught something that he disagreed with and he silenced me. Well, if it was error, it was for good reason. And if that happens and a pastor does that, he has been obedient to the commandments of God. It is not wrong for a pastor to silence false teaching in the church. In fact, it would be disobedience for the pastor not to. If their mouth must be stopped, who is to do that? It is to be the minister. And if the mouth is not stopped, if he tolerates it to go along, to get along, he has disobeyed the commandment of God that was given to him. And so please understand, as difficult as it may be, and sometimes as painful as it may be, the pastor has to silence false teaching and false teachers whose mouths must be stopped. The danger of this is that, number one, they subvert whole houses. Scripture speaks of houses that followed the Lord. And you read of men and women in Scripture that had a church meeting in their house, or an elder who's had a church meeting in his house, and there are houses that have devoted themselves, addicted themselves, is the word in 1 Corinthians 16, to the ministry of the saints. But there's a danger, too, while an entire household, and praise God, we have households that meet with us here, 
There's also great risk of entire houses being subverted. Entire households being led away in false teaching and false doctrine. Understand the false teacher's target is you. And he doesn't just want you. He wants your wife, men. He wants your children. He wants your grandchildren. But you can look at this from another perspective as well, because the church is the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Entire houses, as in churches, can be subverted by false teaching. This is why the minister of the gospel has to have a backbone of steel and a hide of leather and a little bit of grit in his jaw. If you don't have that, just give it a couple of years, (laughs) especially the calloused hide part. You know, every minister goes into his pastorate thinking, ah, they love me there. It's a honeymoon. It's great. They're really going to appreciate everything that I have to say to them. Two years later, he's like, wow, <laughs> this isn't anything like I thought. These people complain about me. They're mean. They, they say mean things to me. They complain about the way I have a haircut and the way my beard looks and the suit that I wore. And, and I preached on this subject, and she said she didn't like to hear that subject. You know, it's a difficult thing being a pastor. Pray for pastors. I know a lot of discouraged pastors right now. I hope today I look very encouraged in your eyes. I've had a smile the entire time. Why? Because I love seeing you gather in worship. What a blessing it is to be here today. Amen. We could be stuck in a shutdown somewhere or, you know, back in December where half of us had the plague and couldn't leave our houses. And I took a bunch of ibuprofen and other pills and live streamed a message in front of the fireplace. That wasn't any fun. I'm in the house of God today. It's a good day. And it starts a week in a good way. Praise God. He's got to have a backbone of steel, some grit in his jaw, and a hide of leather to be able to go through what he goes through because he has to be the one that looks a man in the eye and says, that's not going to be tolerated here, buddy. It's a very difficult thing. Gut-wrenching whose mouth must be stopped, who subvert whole houses. He wants you. He wants your children. He wants your wife. Teaching things which they ought not. Nobody ever ought to teach false things. Teaching things which they ought not. Shouldn't be tolerated. Why does he do this? Now, please understand, there are people that disagree with us on some doctrinal points that love Jesus and they're sincere, and we know that one of us or both are wrong. You know that old saying, you you can both be wrong, but you can't both be right. You can both be wrong, but you can't both be right. Why does the outright false teacher do what he does? For filthy lucre's sake. Now let's turn over to the book of 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter expands upon this a little more than Paul does. There were false prophets among the people, referring to in the Old Testament, even as there shall be false teachers among you. False prophets, then there will be false teachers among us who privily bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now, that phrase, denying the Lord that bought them, has troubled and puzzled people because he describes them elsewhere in this chapter as people who were just outright unregenerate and wicked. How then did God buy them? Well, remember, his primary focus here is the Old Testament. All of Israel was bought out of Egypt. The Lord bought them. He redeemed them out of Egypt. There were false teachers that were bought out of Egypt who 
deceived God's people. Why do they do this? Through covetousness, they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. And then he goes on to make several uses of examples of God's judgment upon people. Why do false teachers do what they do? Through covetousness with feigned words, the word feign means fake, they're pretending to preach, they're pretending to prophesy, they're pretending to be pastors and preachers. They do this because they're covetous and they make merchandise of God's people. Now, I gave you a homework assignment. I don't know how many of you actually went home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 1 Timothy chapter 5, but both of those passages talk about the fact that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. That means that God in a perfect world, ideally, you might say, would have it that his ministers spend their full time devoted to the service of God, the study of his word, and the preaching of the word of God and the ministry to the saints. That's what God has called men to do. Like in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament priests did nothing but minister about the things of the temple, and they ate of the sacrifices, and they ate of the bread, they survived ministering in the temple. That's an example he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for the ministry. This is why, in the qualifications, he must not be greedy of filthy lucre. If you ordain a greedy man, he will change what he preaches because it benefits him financially. There have been times as a pastor where I had to stand up to someone and I knew that it would impact what my family could do every month. Made, made XYZ faction angry this month? It's ramen noodles, baby. But the minister of the gospel doesn't care. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, gee. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to preach the truth. These people, these false teachers, do this for filthy lucre's sake. They do this because they want the income. Now, I'm not going to name names from American Christianity right now, but there are people who have become millionaires and billionaires who live in mansions that rival the capitals of states and even the country, who have private jets and, you know, cars that you see when you go to California. You ever been to Malibu or places like that? I went out there and preached a few years ago, and it's like Ferrari, Ferrari, Lamborghini, Bentley, all these million-dollar cars driving by, and I'm sitting here in my 2006 Chevrolet Uplander. Like, yeah, they're from out of town. It was funny. Why can we park in the back? People look at you like they're not from around here. These people do that to make merchandise of God's children. I'm being very lighthearted with it today, but it's not a funny thing. It's a terrible thing. But I'm trying not to be a fire-breathing, depressing dragon. I want you to be happy that you came, even though it's a message that's warning. I want you to be happy that you came. They do this for filthy lucre's sake. Now, Paul, interestingly enough here, and, and this to me is something that I've enjoyed studying over the years, interjects the words of a pagan philosopher in his argument. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, he's going to quote a Cretan philosopher. He calls him a prophet here and a, I believe a poet in Acts chapter 17 because he quotes the same man. 
one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Paul, remember, has left him in the island of Crete. And one of these Cretan philosophers, more on him in a moment, wrote a poem, and in that poem he wrote, The Cretans, his people, are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. Now, the first time I read slow bellies, I thought, what in the world does that mean? Does it mean they have a slow digestional process? They have a very high metabolism. Perhaps it'd be a slow metabolism. Slow bellies is an idiom, a figure of speech, for a lazy glutton. Slow belly, lazy glutton. Now, that's not to be rude or body shame or things such as that. We're all different body types. Some of us taller, narrower, wider, and, you know, that's, that's not what Paul is doing here. But it is a fact that if a person is lazy and gluttonous, they will be overweight unless they have a thyroid problem. <laughs> a dear brother here told me when I was lamenting the fact that pants are tighter during COVID, he says, you know, that's why they call it COVID-19, because you gain 19 pounds when you're dealing with it. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah, that happens. That happens. I put on clothes and I'm like, can't wear that for, for I need to start jogging. There's this scene in, in a Star Wars movie where the antagonist says, I know what I have to do, but I don't know if I have the strength. That's what I think every time I look at the scale or my jogging shoes or the weight set in the garage. But he calls them slow bellies, and in essence what he's saying is that they're lazy gluttons. They don't do a lot, and they eat too much. Now, by the way, gluttony is a sin, and so is laziness. So those are biblical issues. Read Proverbs, all the words about the sluggard and the sluggish man and the lazy man, and even gluttony. I believe the sluggard and the glutton shall come to poverty might be a proverb that's rattling in my brain, a paraphrase of a proverb. So this Cretan prophet writes, the Cretans are always liars, his own people, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, slow bellies. It's an idiom, a figure of speech. And Paul says concerning his writings, this witness is true, what he said about them is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply. Think about sharp as pinpointed focus, laser focus. A knife is very sharp and it makes a very specific cut. A brick is not so sharp. A bat is not so sharp, but a knife has what you call pinpoint accuracy. Rebuke them sharply. Be very focused in your rebuke of their behavior. This is what you might even refer to as a cultural stereotype for the Cretan island. The people who live there were given to laziness and gluttony and lying, all of those being sin. Now, who is he quoting here? This is interesting. It's a Cretan philosopher named Epimenides. This man is a semi-mythical philosopher because it was taught of him by people who came after him. He was a real man who wrote real things, but it was taught of people who came after him that he fell asleep in a cave while he was looking for a lost animal, and it took some 57 years 
He fell asleep in the cave, and it took some 57 years for him to wake up. In their myth, it was a cave that was frequented and enjoyed by Zeus. And he wakes up, leaves the cave, and his younger brother is now an old man, and the only person that remembers him. And his myth, his legend is that he, depending on which version you read, lived 150 years or 200 years. This is the first variant of an American folklore, Rip Van Winkle. What's the American folklore of Rip Van Winkle? Do you ever remember reading about him as a kid? They probably don't share things like that with kids anymore. He was a man that, during the Revolutionary War, the buildup to it, fell asleep against a tree with his rifle, came to, his beard's long, his rifle's all rusted and dilapidated, and he slept through the American Revolution. Well, Epimenides is the first variation of that that we've ever found in human history, a man falling asleep for many, many years. He wrote a very famous poem that is recorded. Paul quotes this also in the book of Acts chapter 17. Now, I'm going to read the poem, and I want you to remember Acts chapter 17 as we read it. They fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one. He is not speaking of the Lord Jesus. He's speaking of Zeus or Jupiter, depending on if you want to use the Greek or the Roman name. They fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one, Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. Does that latter portion sound familiar to you? If you've read Acts chapter 17, it does. As Paul stood before the philosophers in Athens, Greece, on Areopagus, Mars Hill, Ares Rock, he tells them, I passed by and beheld all of your devotions, and I found one to the unknown God. Him declare I unto you, a God you do not know about, that you have an idol towards. I declare the God you don't know, who commands all men to repent, the only true God, creator of heaven and earth, who sent his Son into the world to die for his people. This Son who has been appointed judge of the quick and the dead, he will judge all men by this man, Christ Jesus, as he comes again to destroy the world. Paul begins at creation. He goes through Christ unto the second coming of Christ, the judgment. And as he does that, he says that God is not far from any one of us, and we should seek him if happily we might feel after him and find him. Verse 28 of Acts 17, For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of one of your own poets have said, For we are also his offspring." Now, that is a mystery to preachers and theologians for nearly two millennia. Why would Paul interject the words of a pagan philosopher written about Jupiter or Zeus to a bunch of Greek men in a sermon, or Athenians in a sermon? Paul takes something that they knew that was relevant to them, and he applied it scripturally to God. You and I could do that too. We don't sometimes realize this, but when men and women sing God bless America, they're not always talking about the same God. But we could borrow that and use it to bring a point. The Constitution says that men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And yet, men who framed that didn't all believe in the same creator. You know Thomas Jefferson rejected the miracles of the Word of God? There were some men who were deists, some were Freemasons, some devoted Christians. But we can borrow that language and teach a lesson about our God to the American people. 
from the, I believe the Declaration, I said Constitution, forgive me. We can borrow the language and apply it and use it. And that's what Paul does. It does not mean that Epimenides was inspired of God. It does not mean that Epimenides was inspired. But rather, Paul says, look, this is true. It shows how learned Paul was. It's true, this witness is true, so rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. I think if Paul were writing this to us today, he would say that the Americans are often liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, wherefore rebuke them sharply that they, the Americans, might be sound in the faith. And if he did that, we might be offended. But if he did that, he would be right. It's a true witness. They can be sound, that they might be sound in the faith. Now, to rush through the remaining portions of this chapter, so we can move into chapter 2 next week. Not giving heed to Jewish fables. What are Jewish fables? The nation of Israel had many fables. They had fables about all sorts of things. Some early Christians borrowed some of these fables and applied them to Christianity. We see glimpses of this. You've heard men say, but I say unto you in the Sermon on the Mount. You see glimpses of this as people begin to ask Jesus, when will God restore the kingdom to Israel? They interpreted the Messiah through the lens of national revival, and that is not why the Lord Jesus came. Even concepts that are popular today about the second coming of Christ, some of them find some roots in Jewish fables of the first century. Where would be a good example to read some Jewish fables? Have you ever heard of the Apocrypha? The Jews of Jesus' day rejected it as God-inspired. They taught it was not biblical. It was not inspired. It was historical, perhaps. The early Christians did not accept the Apocrypha as the Word of God. It wasn't until, I believe, the Council of Trent when Roman Catholicism said that it was deuterocanonical, which is second canon. Second canon is the word that was written by New Testament Christians. The Apocrypha was written in the intertestamental period, the Maccabean period, not written by Christians. It's not deuterocanonical, and the Jews didn't consider it original canon. And so it's always separate when it's even in a Bible up until, again, the 16th century among Roman Catholics, and it's why it's not in our Bibles today. In the Apocrypha and other apocryphal writings, you have all sorts of fables. Ideas that angels had babies with women and these babies were giant people who built cities and did all kinds of things and that's why God flooded the world and get rid of all the angel baby giant people. Oh, okay. You know, David killed a giant named Goliath and uh, that was after the flood. It's usually what happens. People begin talking around in circles. There are Jewish fables that Paul said, listen, don't have anything to do with that. There are American Christian fables that we ought to avoid. Don't want to hurt any feelings, but if you've ever read the Left Behind series, that's an American Christian fable. And there's all sorts of other American Christian fables as well. Beware and avoid them. Stick with what's in the Word of God. And commandments of men that turn from the truth, turn, deflect you from the truth of God's Word. Now let's read these last two verses. Unto the pure all things are pure... How are people pure? They're pure through the blood of the Lord Jesus. Unto the pure, all things are pure, 
But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. We have been cleansed by Christ. I've heard a preacher even use this to perhaps allude to some naivety that we sometimes have as God's children. To the pure, all things are pure. When you understand what you are by grace and you understand what God has done for you, you look out at people in the world and you might be inclined to think that everyone that you meet is just another little child of God, troubled and struggling to the pure, all things are pure. There's a certain naivety. If you want to know about the true nature of man, what he mentions later on in here, go talk to someone who works in an ER or a police department or a military or a fire department or a social worker or a counselor that deals with child abuse. And you'll see very quickly that not everything in the world is pure. And there are people in the world that are outright wicked that want to hurt you and kill you. I've often said sometimes we wear rose-colored glasses and we live in a little marshmallow world where nothing hurts and everything is soft. But this is a very, very cruel world. We sometimes think everything is pure. Unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. This speaks to the outright total nature of human depravity. To them that are defiled is nothing pure. Even their mind and their conscience is defiled. Now what does he mean here in verse 16? They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient in every good work, under every good work, reprobate. Very clearly understand that Paul is dealing here in verse 16 with the reprobate, not the misguided, sincere child of God that believes in error. Reprobates. Read Romans chapter 1 and you get a a good picture into what it means to be a reprobate. And so this verse 16 deals with the unregenerate false teacher. What does it mean that they profess that they know God? Remember his primary focus... In verse 10, the circumcision. There were false teachers among Judaism in the first century who professed to know God. Notice it doesn't say they professed to know Christ, but they professed to know God. There were Jews in John chapter 8 that professed to know God. We've had a, we have Abraham as our father. Never have we been into bondage unto any man. They professed to know God. Jehovah. But what did Jesus say of them? Ye are of your father, the devil. Similarly, in John chapter 10, the same type of first century Jew comes to Jesus and they say, If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly, how long dost thou make us to doubt? And he said, I told you plainly. But you believe not, because you're not of my sheep. Paul's focus here is that type of first century false teacher who claimed to know God, but in works deny him. Think of the Pharisee. Think of the unbelieving Pharisee and the scribe and the Sadducee. Read Matthew 23 and Jesus' stinging rebuke of them that they're whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones that look attractive and appealing on the outside, but on the inside are full of rotted corpses and death. They profess that they know him, but in works they deny him. They're abominable, disobedient, and reprobate. What's our conclusion today? 
We hold forth the word that we, by God's help, might convince people of the truth as it is in Christ. What do I want to leave you with today as an instruction and an encouragement? To go, to take the word that you hold fast, and try every day to convince God's children of the truth of His Word, that salvation is of the Lord, that Jesus is King, that He reigns today, that He has saved His people from their sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this passage. We know, Lord, that there are some difficult statements in it. There are some terrifying warnings in it. It is sobering. We are alarmed, but at the same time we are warned and we are encouraged and we are aware And so, Lord, we pray that we would dismiss with this mind to be more devoted than we've ever been to convincing your children of your word because that word convince is one that we read. We want to convince them. Give us grace and strength and open doors to convince them. Father, we pray that we can deliver them, that your word will deliver them from the false teacher that makes merchandise of them, who would subvert whole houses teaching things which they ought not. And we pray, Father, that the mouths of those who teach falsehood would be stopped. Forgive us of our many sins. Protect us, especially from this danger. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.